Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. We are celebrating that time of year when we look to the Christmas tree, we look under the Christmas tree, we are expectant about being together with family. And the church has always had a little bit of a different angle when it comes to this holiday season, and we come to it from the season in the approach of Advent. And Advent means an arrival. It means a coming. We look back to the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary and was born in a lonely stable in Bethlehem. Uh, As we think about Christmas, though, I know everyone was probably ready for Christmas probably in September this year, because Christmas brings forth these feelings of nostalgia, and it brings forth these feelings of escape, right? And in the midst of the anxiety of 2020, the stress of 2020, that sense of nostalgia and escape couldn't come soon enough. But as we think about Jesus coming into the world in his first advent, uh, we really have to take a different mindset to understand how deeply meaningful it is that Christ came, that Christ arrived. And maybe what would help us think through of it is to think of yourself in a deep, dark prison cell with no windows, no light, just a door, a door with no handle, just a little little slit in the door where light can kind of trickle through. But since there's no light and since there's no handle on the door, there's no hope of you getting out unless someone comes in from the outside. Now, you, you can do whatever you want to in this, in this prison cell, uh, but you just can't get out unless someone opens the door from the outside. That, that's what Advent represents. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian who lived under the, the rule of Nazi Germany and was arrested and put in a dark prison cell because of his plot against the Nazis, He was the one that actually came up with this illustration. He said, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside, all that is not a bad picture of Advent. You know the story, Bonhoeffer was uh, executed not too long before the end of World War II, but He left us with this illustration of us being in this dark and broken world that we can't get out of, that we can't fix, that we can't make better unless Jesus comes in from the outside, unless he brings the light of God in from the outside. But even as we think about that first coming of Jesus, the first Advent, it reminds us that there is a second coming that we're longing for the door to be opened finally, that we're longing for Jesus to come back and renew all things. And that's really what this series is about. Our series is called Jesus, Our Hope, exploring the second coming of Christ as we celebrate the first, as we celebrate the first. And and we're going to read some texts that maybe you wouldn't normally read at Christmas, because normally at Christmas we read, Scripture passages that point us back to the first coming. But this Advent season, we are going to read some Scripture passages that point us back, but more so 
passages that point us forward. I'm going to ask Marcia and Paul to come on up. Marcia is going to read for us 1 Peter 1, and Paul will read 2 Peter 3. Both of these are about the second coming of Christ. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up, and we will hear from God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'll be reading 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of, of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to, ca to catch a glimpse of these things. All right, 2 Peter 3, starting with verse 8. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed." Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God, as we enter in and lean into this Advent season, uh, the Bible is unapologetic about two things. The first thing is this, Christ came. The second thing is this, Christ will come again. Jesus came once and he is returning. When we talk about the first Advent of Jesus, we often use the theological term incarnation. And incarnation comes from the wording incarnate or in flesh. Uh, when Jesus was born as a baby to the Virgin Mary, he was God in the flesh. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And as we look at this dark world, the fact that God would enter into this broken mess is a great spotlight of hope. 
It's a great light of hope in our dark world that God would enter in and rub shoulders with us broken, sinful humans. And that should give us hope this Christmas time. But that light, that light isn't just something that we look back to. That light is actually pointing somewhere. If, as we look back to the first coming of Christ, we're meant to see that the light is also pointing towards the future. We're meant to turn around and look to the future and see that the light of the first advent reminds us that there is a second advent, that Jesus will return. He will make all things new. Now, in the first advent, he came in humility as a peasant born to a family that was unknown, but when he comes again, he will come in glory. In the first time Jesus came, he came and no one really saw him, but his family and the angels and some shepherd, shepherds. But when Christ comes again, everyone will see him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. When the first time Jesus came, he didn't come to judge, but rather to take the judgment of God on himself. When he died on that cross for you and I, he absorbed the wrath and judgment of God for our sins. But when he comes again, he comes as judge. Not to be judged by God, but as the representative judge of God to call the way things are in this unrighteous world. The first time Jesus came, he began the renewal of all things when he died on the cross and he kicked open that tomb and resurrected on the third day. But when he returns, he will finalize the renewal of all things and make this world a place where the righteousness of heaven dwells forever. The first coming and the second coming have similarities and differences, but here's one thing they have in common. They are both meant to give us hope. We are meant as followers of Jesus to find a great hope in both his first coming and his second coming. In fact, Peter calls this not just any hope, but a living hope. He has given us new birth into a, say it, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, I don't know if you caught it right there, but Peter is telling us to look back to the first time Jesus came, but also to look forward with hope to him coming again. He's telling us to look back at what Christ has already accomplished in his death and resurrection the first time he came, but also to look ahead with hope that one day he will return, and when he returns, you and I will get an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And really here as we stand in between these two advents, this series is really about finding hope in Jesus. Hope as we look back to what Jesus has already done Hope as we look forward to what he will do when he comes back. Hope is a strange thing, though. We know what optimism is, but we don't necessarily understand what hope is. Uh, optimism is very common in our culture, and I think it's a moment where we need optimism, right? We need people who can sort of see the silver lining. We need to be able to, like, ignore some things that are negative and imagine that there could be something positive that happens. Still, optimism is different than hope. 
Jay Kim says that we often think of hope as mere optimism. We often think as, of hope as wishing for adults. Wishing for adults. Jay Kim says, we hope the lines aren't too long. We hope for a good diagnosis. We hope everything will work out. Today, hope is most often thought as a grown-up version of wishing. This is why when our hopes seem a bit too outlandish, we may call them wishful thinking. Now, I think it's good to imagine good possibilities. It's, it's great to be able to see life with a positive lens and to believe that something out there could be better, but that's not the same as Christian hope. J. Kim goes on to say, but Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is an expectant leap forward. This radically counterintuitive nature of Christian hope is shaped by a resilience and fortitude that's woefully missing from pop culture renderings of hope. See, optimism or wishful thinking is, I could see a better possibility out there. Hope means God said he will do something, and I believe he will do it. Even if it doesn't look like he's going to do it, even if things seem dark, even if things seem broken, God said he will do it, and therefore I can place my confidence in him doing what he says. See, one of the weaknesses of optimism is to be optimistic, you kind of have to ignore the negative parts of life. You kind of have to say, well, I'm only going to focus on the positive things, and that's good. We should do that. But I find that sometimes... In the back of our mind, even though we try and stay optimistic, there's this nagging voice that says, I'm going to focus on the positive things, but what happens if the bottom really does drop out? Like, what happens if I think things are going to go positive, and I try and stay positive, and it ends up being very negative? What happens if things get really dark, even though I try and stay positive? Well, Christianity offers us something much deeper than optimism. Because Christianity says, even if the bottom does drop out, even if things get darker than we can ever imagine, God will still do what he said he will do. God will still do what he said he will do. In fact, that's the whole setting of the first coming of Christ. We don't realize how dark things were in the world when God had promised that Jesus would come as the Messiah, and then Jesus shows up. Fleming Rutledge had it right when she said this, Advent starts in the dark. You see, during that time when Jesus came, Israel was under the oppression of Rome. They were not a sovereign nation during that time. They were part of a larger empire. Not only that, but the promise was made to Mary that she would bear the Christ child. Mary was not married. In fact, she came from a peasant family. She was extremely poor. Not only that, but during this time, Rome was express expressing their power by commanding everyone in the whole Roman Empire to go to their hometown and be registered for a sentence, census so that they could know how many people they had power over. Now, that is a dark world to live in, but that's exactly the world in which God's promises come to fruition through the Messiah. That's exactly when Jesus shows up. 
God keeps his promises, not because anyone wished that the Messiah would show up, but because God said the Messiah is coming, and he keeps his promises. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. Not only that, the whole reason of the Messiah showing up, the whole reason Jesus came in the first advent was so that sin and death and the devil could be defeated. Jesus came as a child, but he went to the cross and died in your and my place. He had lived the life that you and I should have lived, and he died the death that you and I deserve to die. And on the third day, he rose from the dead And as he was resurrected, he was seen by over 500 witnesses. And those of us who have our faith placed in him have all of our sins, past, present, and future, forgiven. Death is not the final word for you or I. We are no longer separated from God. We are no longer under the judgment of God because God kept his promises through Jesus Christ, through the coming of Christ. See, one of of the things that we can learn from the first advent is that God has already dealt with our greatest problems. During this time of coronavirus, uh, I've got problems. You've got problems. I mean, even if we weren't in the midst of a pandemic, we would have a lot of problems personally. We have a lot of problems as, as a culture. But something happens in our own mind and hearts when we forget the fact that God made a promise to send the Messiah to deal with our greatest problems, and therefore every other problem we have is, is really minor compared to what God has already done. So you have bills to pay, and that's a challenge. But God has wiped all your sins away through Christ. You're trying to figure out how to parent and work, and that is difficult. But through Christ's resurrection, through his, his first coming, death has been defeated. We're all trying to figure out how to get our quality of life up in the midst of this stressful moment. But there is no longer separation between you and God because Christ died in your place. You and I often forget that the first advent of Jesus means that our greatest problems have been dealt with. I mean, we have challenges, we have difficulties. But as we look back to the first coming of Christ, we realize that we have hope because Jesus came. He died. He rose again in victory. And he's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming to change this broken world into a world where there are no problems. This world of unrighteousness into a world of righteousness. He's going to renew and restore all things and banish sin and death and the devil forever. And we can count on that because he's already come once and he's already dealt with the greatest problems we have, sin and death and the devil. And he will finalize his victory when he returns. And Christian, that should give you great hope. Great hope hope. When I talk to my children about Jesus' second coming, they're so honest. And they say, why 
if he's really coming back, and all that's true, he's going to make everything right, he's going to renew all things, he's going to banish death and devil and the, and the devil and sin forever, why doesn't he do it today? And I have to give them a deep theological answer. I don't know. Because we, we don't know. No one knows the day or the hour that Christ returns except the Father. That's what Jesus said. Which means you and I are having to wait. We have to wait. But it's not just that we wait. We're waiting with hope. And hope helps us wait. Hope helps us wait. Waiting is hard. I don't know why God doesn't come back, but I know that Peter has said in this passage that God doesn't think about time like we think about time. For us, a day is 24 hours and a year is 365 days. But for the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And what that means is we're not like God. And we don't think about time in the way that God thinks about time. And waiting is really hard in a culture that despises uh, delayed gratification. It's amazing how we get so used to getting exactly what we want when we want it. And we begin to think that if we have to wait for something, it must not be worth it. But Peter says the exact opposite about waiting for the second coming of Christ because when, the, when Jesus returns and he restores and renews all things and he wipes all tears away and you and I live in a restored world in the presence of God, it is worth any wait. 2 Peter 3.13, but based on his what? On his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. He doesn't fill in all the details, but we can begin to imagine in an unrighteous world, what if the righteousness of God and the glory of God covered the earth like the waters cover the sea? What happens if all the interactions that you and I have that are filled with insecurity and sin and our relationships that we never quite get on the same page, what if that's all gone? And we can just love each other. What if all the things in our world that cause division and divisiveness, what if those are gone and we live in a world that has been recreated by God? Well, the prophets longed for the first coming of Jesus. Peter tells us that the prophets would examine the scripture and they would try and figure out and, and calculate. It reminds me of one of those memes where, like, the, the math is over the person's head and they're trying to think about it. You know, the prophets are examining the scripture, trying to figure out when Jesus came the first time because they understood the amount of grace that was going to be unleashed on humanity when God sent his son into the world to begin the restoration process. But you and I can look back on that grace and know that God's grace will be poured out even more on us when Christ returns. In fact, it says in the scriptures that we just read that the angels long to look into the goodness of the gospel. The angels were on their tippy toes looking to see when Christ would come the first time. Because there was so much grace and hope that was about to be poured out. And as we think about the longing and waiting for the first coming, that gives us a little perspective as we wait and long for the second coming and God's grace to be poured out on us when he comes again. And it is that hope that helps us wait because whatever is wrong about what we're facing right now in this moment, it will be made right when Christ returns. Whatever it is. 
See, oftentimes we look at hope and we think that hope will change everything around us. But hope actually changes us no matter what changes around us. Hope gives us a depth and resolve and fortitude no matter how dark or broken things are, even in the face of death. Paul Herbert was a missionary, a missionary sociologist who went to India and he took part of a Christian church in this little town in India. And while he was there, smallpox came and uh, infected the village, this little tiny village in India. And the village, which was mostly not Christians, the village decided, listen, um, we are going to hire a witch doctor to come in and, and cast out this disease of smallpox. And the Christians said, no, we, have, we can't do that. Um, we have a hope in Jesus Christ, so we can't contribute money to this witch doctor coming to cast out the smallpox because our hope's not in him. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Well, the rest of the village got mad at the Christians in this village because they're like, we need, we need your help with the money. We need you guys to contribute. And then a little child in the church fell sick with the smallpox. And they felt this real tension. They felt this real tension about what to do. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. But ultimately, they lost the child to smallpox. It was a terrible tragedy. It made Herbert, the, the missionary, made him incredibly discouraged. He didn't understand why God didn't answer the prayer. It, it made the church discouraged. In fact, one of the elders came to Herbert and said this, listen, if the village, if God had just healed this girl, the whole village would have converted. I don't understand why God didn't heal this girl. The village would have acknowledged the power of God had he healed the, chi- the child. But then the elder stopped, the elder from the church stopped and began to reflect on the funeral, and he said this, but when they saw in the funeral our hope, when they saw in the funeral of this little child, when they saw our hope of the resurrection and reunion in heaven, they saw an even greater victory over death itself. And they, the rest of the village, have begun to ask about the Christian way. Waiting is hard because we do experience the brokenness of this world. But hope helps us waiting even in the darkest of circumstances because God will do what he says he's going to do. Jesus will return and make everything sad come untrue. Let that hope deeper into your heart because it will give you resolve in the face of darkness. It will give you courage in the midst of brokenness. Hope is meant to help us wait when things get hard. Tim Keller says this, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows tasting the coming joys. What Keller is saying is that when things are good, most people worry that they're going to go bad. But for the Christian, when things are bad, they ultimately know they will get good when Christ returns, and we get to taste that joy now even as we wait. But that does not mean that we sit and do nothing. We are called to wait, but we're actually called to be active to be active representatives of God's kingdom here on earth as we wait. 
There's a funny saying that says, Jesus is coming, look busy. <laughs> like when he comes back, just act like you're doing something. <laughs> That's not what Peter means at all. One theologian said, we're often tempted to think about this time of waiting as if we're just killing time. But rather than that, we as Christians are filling time. We're doing something that's purposeful. We are here on earth for a promise. Peter tells us that we both wait for the Lord to come, but we also hasten his coming. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 12 says, It is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Hasten has to do with this living with a longing for what's next to come now. We hasten his coming when we get to work for the kingdom, not to be busy, but because we want to be the type of people now in this moment who have an eye on what's to come. We are to live with holy conduct, which makes us ask, how are we conducting ourselves now? Are we walking now in light of who we will become when Christ returns? Are are we loving each other? Are we serving each other? Are we submitting to each other? Are we embracing suffering? Or are we living for ourselves? Are we feeding our pet sins? See, if Jesus comes one day to transform the world in the future, shouldn't we be the type of people now who live in light of that coming? If Jesus comes to transform the future, shouldn't our lives be transformed now in the present? Hope helps us hasten by living holy lives now, by seeing who we will become one day and seeking by the power of the Spirit to live that out now, both in our holiness but also in our godliness. God has chosen you and I to represent him here in our city. There's no other representatives of God besides Christians. It's us. We are called to godly living to reflect and represent who God is. And as we hasten the day of the Lord, as we long so much for Jesus' second coming, as we long so much for him to restore all broken things, we live out the restoration of the future in the present. We become people of hope. We become people who hope for others. We become people who can picture what it will be like to live in Jesus' new heavens and new earth, and we begin to live with that reality in our minds right now. Cornelius Plantinga says this, According to Scripture, the person who wants the restoration of the earth wants the kingdom of God, whether she knows it or not. And the coming kingdom depends on the coming of the king, the one who will return with power and great glory. The second coming of Jesus Christ means to a Christian that God's righteousness will at last fill the earth. And the real world in all its trouble and all its turmoil will be transformed by God's shalom and peace. People with crummy lives want it to happen now. Passionate Christians want the return of the Lord now. And let me add, so do compassionate ones. When our life is sweet, we can look across the world to see lives that aren't sweet. We can raise our heads and hopes for those lives. We can weep with those who weep and hope with those who hope. We can look across the world and across the room and across the hall and ask the question, could justice really come to earth? Could husbands quit beating up their wives? 
And could wives quit blaming themselves? Could Palestinians and Israelis finally join hands? Could some of us who struggle with addictions or with diseases that trap us be liberated by God and start to walk tall in the kingdom of God now? When God descends to us at the end, could we perhaps awaken every day to stabs of joy in the mornings too full of beauty for us? We believe in the kingdom of God. We will pray and we will hope for those without much hope left. We will drive through the fog of doubt that descends on even the keenest believer. Glentinga ends by saying this, and listen to this. The hardest task for people who believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ is in living the sort of life that makes people say, So that's how people who are going to live when righteousness takes over are living. Friends, you and I are a people of hope. As we look back to the coming of Christ, we have great hope because God sent Jesus just like he said. As we look forward, we have hope because Jesus will return just like he said. Now we wait. Now we hasten, but we hasten and long with hope. (laughs) And just like the young child did in the middle of our prayer time, and just like millions of Christians have throughout the last 2,000 years, we cry out. We cry out, Maranatha. We cry out, Amen. You know what the last verse of the Bible say? The last verse of the Bible says, he who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And we say, we say, amen, come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Friends, as we hope, we also cry out, Christ has come, and Maranatha, Christ will come return. Let that fill you with hope this Advent season. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.